0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 262.
1: I guess I come from a place like my, my starting point is that uh, all of us humans are are deeply flawed. You know, that, that we're, we're, um, we're, we're just a step removed from uh, swinging through the trees and our best efforts at distancing ourselves from our kind of inherent flawed, common sense, light nature is science. (laughs)
0: That's Matthew Hangoltz Hedling, a journalist and author who became fascinated with the world of alternative medicine, more specifically, the kind of alternative medicine that has no basis in science, that isn't supported by the FDA or any other agency. The sort of products that people sell and make pretty good money selling, even though there is an enormous amount of evidence suggesting that they not only don't work, they couldn't work. They are absolutely not supported by science. And he takes a pretty empathetic view of this sort of thing. People who would search for these kinds of cures and people who would sell these things legitimately believing that they're offering something good to the world. And he became interested in all of this while pursuing an idea for a book about something else, really, about the medical freedom movement, In the middle of the COVID pandemic, when governments around the world began implementing mandates for masks and vaccines and so on, Matt noticed there was a pretty significant pushback against those mandates, especially if they were mandates, if it was mandated behavior. And he thought maybe he could write a book about all that, exploring the history of it, exploring what was happening right now. The medical freedom movement had been quiet for years until we all witnessed a huge surge in its popularity around 2020, when an estimated 66 million Americans refused to wear masks. And then after we got the vaccine, about 62 million people refused to get vaccinated. According to the U.S. Census, the CDC, our world in numbers, and other sources Somewhere between 15 to 20% of Americans eventually opted out of the whole thing, of all the preventative measures that came to COVID. And when the Brookings Institution conducted a huge, expansive, and expensive poll asking why, Matt was struck by how the most frequent answer given by those who refused to wear a mask was that, as Americans, they simply had the right not to.
1: I was interested in some of the policy questions that, that were being raised by the pandemic. You know, how far can and should the government go to protect the public when that protection unavoidably creates a collision with the rights of the individual? You know, there, there were uh, there, there's a really interesting tension there.
0: The United States has a long history of pushback against public health mandates. And taken as a whole, they're usually categorized as various aspects of the medical freedom movement. Here's a clip from a news report in the 1980s when seatbelts first became mandatory in Michigan,
1: It is a new seatbelt ordinance. If the town council gets its way, seatbelts will be mandatory for everybody riding in the front seat of a car through Richland.
0: Well, I'll have to detour the town to get to Kalamazoo. If they pass the seatbelt ordinance, I don't use a seatbelt. I wouldn't wear my seatbelt.
1: I get caught, I get caught. I get-
0: and here's another news report in Florida when seatbelts became mandatory there.
1: Florida Highway Patrol
0: Lieutenant Chris Miller hears it all when it comes to seatbelts.
1: I hear it's uncomfortable. Um, It wrinkles my clothes. Um, It's not cool. There's no freedom no more. You don't want to wear it?
0: That's your choice. And here's a clip from a news story in Texas in the 1980s when drinking and driving became illegal. Or you could look at it like driving sober became illegal mandatory
1: any attempt to restrict drinking and driving here is viewed by some as downright undemocratic it's kind of getting common when a fella can't put in a hard day's work put in 11 12 hours a day and then get in your truck and at least ring one or two beers they're making it laws where you can't drink when you want to you can't you have to wear a seat belt when you're driving and pretty soon we're gonna become this country
0: And this is audio from episode 153 of this podcast back in 2020 of audio from news reports interviewing people in Texas and Arizona who were protesting masks, masks to prevent the spread of COVID. We can't breathe! 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 breathe. America is figuring this hoax out! Very freedoms that so many people fought and died for are being threatened right now by our elected officials. Masks make it difficult for people to breathe. Oxygen is something our, everybody's body needs to fight off disease, whether it's cancer, viruses, bacteria. We need oxygen. And the mask gets in the way of that.
1: We're all Americans!
0: So, yes, there's a long history in the United States of pushback against health mandates. And it seems to be motivated by, driven by, a set of widespread cultural values related to individualism and choice. A uh, don't-tell-me-what-to-do-don't-tell-me-how-to-live-or-how-to-die sensibility combined with a long-standing and pervasive mistrust of scientific, medical, and government authority. Every so often, those three forms of pocket protector, stethoscope, suit-and-tie elite institutional authorities, people who, and perhaps this might have been true to an extent in some era, but people who are seen as living comfortable lives in ivory towers and halls of academia and law and politics, far away from the trenches, the homesteads, the streets, the struggle. People who push their glasses up and tell you what to do. They combine into a perfect storm of mistrust that threatens a particular sense of American freedom. So this is what Matt was chasing down. And there's a really long history here. The medical freedom movement was very popular in pre-Civil War America when the average person knew far less than most people do today about health and medicine. When people died from fevers and... Mysterious maladies and miasmic, confusing, bizarre, might as well be magic, barely understood elements of nature. And the idea of someone telling you what you could eat, what you could smoke, telling you how to live your life was really, 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 really opposed to American cultural values. One organization, the National League, they became a sort of union for, and this is a quote from a 1930s book about them, a union for, quote, homeopaths, the eclectics, the osteopaths, the Christian scientists, and other schools of healing, end quote. And that book lists many groups in that league. Chiropractors, faith healers, herbal folk medicine practitioners, naturopaths, the members of the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League, and the Anti-Vivisection Society. The name of that book? Medical Liberty. Drugless Healers confront. Allopathic doctors. Allopathic medicine, by the way, is a derogatory term used back then to describe what we today would call science based medicine, which they considered conventional medicine, which they considered a vast conspiracy to trick Americans into taking things that prolong their sicknesses instead of curing them. As the drug industry became an industry, as the medical industry became an industry, as hospitals and sanitariums became places you can make a living, make a killing. As the for-profit side of American healthcare started to really turn a profit, a whole lot of newfound mistrust began to trickle out into society. And you may have noticed, this is still a widespread set of beliefs, attitudes, and values in the United States. And these anxieties that lead to these behaviors and these feelings and these beliefs These anxieties tend to ebb and flow with the population's overall trust in the government. When trust is low, quacks and alternative medical ideas, wholly unsupported by scientific evidence. In fact, the evidence points in the other direction become popular. And in those times, the far left and the far right of American politics find themselves curiously aligned with not only each other, but with extreme libertarians as all of these groups combine in their shared mistrust of doctors and scientists who keep assuring them that medicine, as Tim Minchin once said, that's been proved to work by science is just called medicine. And anything that falls into the alternative category is a waste of time, money, effort, and might actually be very dangerous. But also, in times like this, in times like during the COVID pandemic, when there's a surge in this sensibility, there are ethical, moral, and philosophical questions raised by mandates. Should we allow the government to tell us what to do with our bodies, even when we know it might be the right thing to do? It might be opening the door to saying it's okay for the government to tell people what to do with their bodies or what not to do with their bodies when it's not the right thing to do. And that's what Matt was interested in writing a book about.
1: And it's, uh, 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 I think there's room for a lot of nuanced policy discussion that doesn't have to, to turn into, you know, slinging of stones. Um, but when I started to reach out, uh, yeah, basically my approach was, I thought, geez, you let me talk to some people who have had some, uh, conflict with the government in the sphere of, um, alternative medicine and see what they have to say. You know, let, 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 me get their voice in here and try to understand them as, as individuals and how those life experiences inform their policy positions. But the folks that I spoke with, uh, I, I quickly realized were, um, you know, out now radical extremists when it came to their policy positions. You know, my, my question would be, you know, uh how what changes would you make to the fda because they they all you know uh many of them came into conflict with the fda A- and their answer was invariably you know i'd get rid of the fda you know they 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 had no no uh finer policy recommendations they they just had this hammer uh w- with which they wanted to to smash the entities that were hampering them A- and so as i kind of caught onto that extremism um uh, I began to shift my focus of the book, and really found that there is this whole world of bizarre, fringe healthcare that not only is beyond the pale in terms of the the sorts of uh, cures that they're they're selling, uh, but is also influencing us the you know, mainstream society more than I could have ever imagined, and, and so. That was kind of like the, the, the direction that my uh, book took, and that was where I went.
0: Which brings us to a man named Toby McAdam. Because when Matt set out to write a book about medical freedom, it was Toby who sent him down a completely different path. Matt's book, by the way, is titled If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey into the Fringes of American Medicine. And after this break... We will talk all about it by exploring the story of Toby McAdam and his battles with the FDA, his struggles to prevent a zombie apocalypse, and his chance meeting with Elon Musk. All that after this break. And now we return to our program. In the early 2000s, in the year 2000 to be exact, Toby McAdam of Montana, age 42, decided he would run for governor under the campaign slogan Toby or not Toby. As it would turn out, Toby McAdam was not destined to become the governor of Montana, largely because he did not qualify for the 2000 gubernatorial race, as outlined by the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, which ran a story out of Livingston, Montana, in January of that year, detailing how Toby did want to lower taxes. He wanted to bring back prayer to local schools. He also wanted to provide a $25 a month health insurance plan for all citizens, in addition to solving the state's wolf problem. But all of this was unlikely, because he hadn't paid his child support since 1988. (music) Under the headline, Despite Legal Problems, Toby McAdam Wants to Be Your Governor, the article also detailed all the time he had served in prison for passing bad checks across the state and for violating his parole by opening bank accounts under false names, a few years later. His press release, the one announcing his candidacy before all of this came out, back when he was still pretty sure he had a shot at becoming governor if he ran a campaign like Jesse Ventura or Ross Perot, as an outsider, as a man constantly under attack by authorities, authorities who wished to silence him, a man constantly persecuted for standing up for his rights, a rebel that press release. It read, quote, Mr. McAdam is the best option Montana has to enter the 21st century, and with his tax reform, the economy will be the strongest that any state has ever experienced. Toby is what Montana needs. Toby or not Toby. It's your choice. Make it wisely. For the future of Montana rides on his changes... His issues.
1: So Toby was a guy from Montana, you know, came from a family that was as uh, staunchly liberal and, and democratic as uh, a family in Montana could be.
0: Once again, that's Matthew Hugoltz Hetling, journalist and author.
1: And he grew up, you know, as kind of like uh, a little bit aimless in his life. You know, he. He would kind of have some grand purposes, uh, but you know, he was a bullied kid. He was often not taken very seriously uh, within his family and within the community.
0: When Matt set out to write a book about the rise of the medical freedom movement in the United States, during the height of COVID-19, he thought he should first reach out and meet with a few people in that movement, people who held prominent positions, in the alternative medicine community. That way he could interview them and get their side of things before digging deeper and reaching out to experts. That was how I met Toby McAdam, who was now 65 years old and still living in Montana, but had put aside all his political aspirations to instead pursue a career making, packaging, and selling alternative medicine. Here's Matt.
1: Some of his you know, kind of more colorful enterprises you know, just kind of kept running aground, including a failed run for governor. He, his mother, who he loved very much and who he had a wonderful relationship with, his, his uh, Scottish mother, who he saw you know, sticking up for the vulnerable, uh, de- defending the oppressed uh, throughout the course of his life, a- and oftentimes he was the vulnerable oppressed person that she was defending, he, she, she fell ill. Uh, and she started to decline in her later years, and Toby was driven to take a personal hand in his mother's medical care, and so he started, you know, reading magazines and kind of educating himself about herbal remedies. Came to the conclusion that um, the the most extreme healthcare claims of the herbal remedies that he was reading about were in fact the the correct interpretation of those um, those sales pitches. And so he started buying raw materials like wormwood and bloodroot and, and these sorts of things, and you know, he set up a little home laboratory and he would grind these things up and put them into capsules and give them to his mother. Uh, whatever health ailment she had, he did some research and came up with a, a, a natural cure and... Uh, gave them to her, prescribed them to her with, with, uh, with, with instructions on, on taking and dosage and all of that. And, you know, at some point she, uh, she passed on uh, and it was very, very sad and devastating for Toby. And while he was cleaning out her home uh, with, with his uh, brother-in-law uh, he came across some of the pills that he had made for her and she had not taken them. And he, was really um, moved by that. I, I think uh, he, he thought that perhaps she had decided that it was just time to move on. Uh, but uh, wh- whatever conclusions he drew from that, uh, he came out of his mother's death with this strong sense of purpose that he had to uh, use these herbs to, to help others. Uh, and he believed that you know the average person could live to 120 years old if only they would follow an all-natural treatment path.
0: In Matt's book, he tells the stories of several people like this. A dentist from Rapid Creek, South Dakota, who in his 60s embarked on a career that he believed would revolutionize healthcare with this special device he was creating. There's Toby There's Robert Young, a missionary from Utah who became a folk musician and a tennis player, then a research scientist who felt like he had completely revolutionized germ theory, which he didn't, Uh, spoiler, but he believed he did. And he thought that he could save the world with this. There's a language teacher who flees Poland, flees authoritarian rule, who believes that she can save the world through a better usage of leeches. A Pentecostal couple in California who once spent $20,000 on chandeliers who came to believe that they could pray away any sickness and that their special form of prayer was more powerful than any other medical procedure. And there are two men in the book who didn't work together, but they eventually met and they developed what they believed was a miracle drink, a, a beverage, a special concoction, an old school tincture that a person could take to cure everything. It was the cure-all for everything. If only they could get the FDA and all the other regulatory bodies to see the truth that they had discovered independently, outside of science, outside of medicine. In each story, with each person, all of these individuals that Matt met and interviewed and details in the book, they each have an immense frustration with regulatory bodies, with the government, in quotes. Because they believe they have figured it out. They are heroes. They're trying to do something heroic. And there aren't very many books that I've read that detail the motivations behind why a person would enter this world from the side where they're trying to sell you these sorts of things. And I find that very fascinating. In the case of Toby McAdam, his mother was dying and... She had a number of maladies, including cancer. And he was always one of these rebellious individuals, believed in medical freedom and freedom in general, had these mythological concepts of what it meant to be a person in the modern world beset at all sides by people trying to persecute him for his crazy ideas. And he thought maybe I could find a way to get past all of these forces against me and my family to save my mother's life He created a supplement that he later learned she did not take. And he felt like that's why she must have died. And it became his mission, his life's work, to try to offer this to other people's families, to other people's mothers, to maybe make up for something that he felt like he almost, almost could have counted as his big win. His first win, really, in a lifetime of ups.
1: So he started marketing and selling these supplements, and over time, uh, the FDA noticed that his supplements were accompanied by assertions that he could, you know, cure various forms of of cancer and asthma and, and every other medical condition that you can think of. So they started asking him to stop, and he spent years talking with them, but not stopping. Uh, you know, making arguments about why, uh, you know, he wasn't getting the proper direction or, or what have you. And after many, many years, he eventually was brought to justice, uh, and, uh, served some time in jail and then came out and was kind of like in disgrace because he'd been shut down by the FDA and he became the first person who was ever shut down by the FDA uh, who then received FDA approval to market supplements, um, and, and he did this with some some amazing perseverance and, and um, uh, uh, you know by really narrowing the scope of what he was doing. Uh, and so now he's got a Lugol's iodine supplement uh, that's on the market uh, that that he says has a lot of uh, does a lot of people a lot of good. It's not quite curing cancer, but hey, it's a living. Right.
0: It's, it's also important to note this man believes in zombies, correct? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we call that burying the lead in the business. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. Andy moves. Yeah, no. Um, one of the really <laughs> remarkable things uh, that, that I came across in this book was uh, uh, Toby told me that uh, it was possible for um, nefarious agents to tweak existing uh, viruses that one could order through the mail and turn use those tweaked viruses to turn people into zombies. Uh, and, and I just dismissed it as one of many colorful things that, that Toby told me. But then when I was talking to other healers, they started, uh, without any questions for me, injecting stories about zombies into our conversations uh, and not, you know, hey, did you see The Walking Dead? Ah, uh, but hey, did you know that there are real zombies walking the earth, and this is this is where they come from, and and uh, be careful. Uh, and uh, they had different theories of how zombies came to be, and those theories were as inconsistent one with the other as their their modes of healing were. Uh, you know, one one the faith healers thought that um, zombies could uh, were basically demonic entities seizing upon the morally compromised. Uh, one guy thought that uh, zombies were the result of um, people receiving vaccinations that were laced with nanotechnology that allowed bad guys to flip a switch and turn them into zombies. And there's a theory that uh, cell phone, you know, uh, electromagnetic things for, uh, raised from uh, cell phone towers, they could cause people to glitch and turn into zombies. Uh, so all these different folks believed in some way, shape or form zombies. And then when I did more research into that, I found that, you know, some of the same social dynamics that created parallel life experiences for some of these healers, uh, also introduced, uh, and, and impressed upon them the possibility of real life zombies. And
0: inc- what an incredible, like discovery of, of like you put it, par- parallel life experiences, like, for, uh, for so many people to be to believe in zombies and to get there in similar ways, because of similar inputs from their environment and from similar struggles, absolutely astonishing to me. And I, I realize now that the, the Last of Us and um, the Walking Dead are there, some of their popularity is fueled by something I wasn't aware was happening sociologically in my country. But I find that astonishing and i thank you for that i think there's a question mark after that thank you
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah like academics have shown that like yeah the the zombie narrative is actually like a deeply conservative narrative yeah it's the idea is there is no government uh yeah public social services have broken down and it's up to the rugged individual to not just you know forage to survive but to go out with trick weaponry to, to demolish uh, these inhuman creatures roaming the streets. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Wow. So that, that all that's, the elites that's kind are kind of
0: like a He-Man fantasy. It's perfect. Cause the elites are neutered by this, you know, what's, what's, what's the good of a PhD? What's the good of knowing your Shakespeare in a world like that? And that's right. And your, your honor and your respect mean everything. And you're taking care of your homestead. is very important. I totally get how um, McCarthy would use that as a, story between for on the for the for the road to be like a story of what's the value of the liberal versus conservative soul because like his son was Mm -hmm. naturally very outgoing and and progressively minded and empathetic and his the father was like you can't do that in this world world world's too tough for that but then his father is learning from him and they're going back and that ended up being like the 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 source material for a lot of other post-apocalyptic fiction including uh the last of us and other things it's a great it's a great substrate to tell that story i could totally see how yeah if you're in a rural america and big pharma whatever that means to you is failing you in whatever way that's that failure manifests in your life that uh zombies aren't far away not not that far away in your in your reckoning of what might be happening around you wow that's right also, he he met he met Elon Musk, kinda. He got to he asked Elon Musk a question and and created a a narrative that Elon Musk gave him uh, the go ahead to fight the good fight. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Before Toby went to jail, he had an option. You know, he, he the, the, the FDA kind of drew a line in the sand and said, "Uh, yeah, you're you're we're we're gonna go from the regulatory paperwork phase into the criminal justice phase if you don't stop." and toby saw that elon musk was coming to an economic conference summit type thing in his state and so he went and stood in line at, got to the the podium where he could ask elon musk a, a question publicly and elon is very non-committal uh and kind of wanting to just move on to the next questioner i i think is, is how i read it but toby walked away with kind of a certainty that Elon Musk had told him to fight it at all costs you know in, in the way that that a, a hero might might hear a uh, a call to arms and so toby based on what he thought Elon Musk said uh crossed the line uh that that the fda had established and wound up going to jail and then uh yeah when, when toby got out uh that that was kind of like what started his uh his reform period, I guess you would say he's got one of the happier outcomes.
0: Yeah. Of, of the people you detail. And I, I, again, to people listening, every person in the book is given this, uh, careful treatment that you actually hear their Tara story. And each one of them does do as Toby does with, if it's something along the way, makes you feel like you're the main character in a very, in a heroic arc and you're fighting against, uh, great forces that are trying to prevent you from saving, the world and you know in toby's origin story of that of that arc what really struck me was you know he's he's with his mother on her deathbed golden girls playing in the background she is dying and she's dying from conditions that his pills that he ordered the raw ingredients from off the internet believing things that he had read on the kind of websites that tell you things when you're desperate for something uh in a part of the country that is underserved by the American healthcare system. So you are left out there alone. Oftentimes he created these pills. She's dying from conditions that his pills did not help, but he believed they had. And then she asked him to promise he would never stop making those pills because it made her proud that he had sort of found, finally found a purpose in his, in his aimless wandering. And then it really struck him that when he, they cleaned out, as you, as you mentioned, cleaning out her stuff after her death, that she hadn't been taking them, but he's able to maintain the narrative by by this it, mental gymnastics of saying, "Oh, this is why she died because she didn't take the pills." And she she it, she's told me that I should keep doing this. I'm fighting the good fight. She didn't take these pills probably because she was ready to go. But if she had, she would have lived. And I read that as this will this is the sort of thing that would have would that would fuel a person for the rest of their life like they would never stop after feeling those two things combined right. back to
1: back that's absolutely right um you know maybe um if you are you know uh not into that field and not uh, a conservative maybe the the closest analog would be like what if you felt like you had come across something that could cure climate change you know that, that could solve the climate change crisis you you've got the magic formula or you've got the the product or, or whatever it is, and you start trying to get it out there, and you don't make it into the marketplace because what you're what you're selling is, is you know unsellable or or uh, unmarketable or illegal. You know you you would probably start to think like this is big oil. Oil is keeping me down. You you would uh, perhaps find that same sort of axe to grind against uh, against the government and, and its institutions. That's,
0: I love, I love a book that insists upon itself. And I love a, a journalist or author of any kind who just follows where the book says, okay, this is where we're going to have to go. Because the worst stuff always is trying to push the original idea that you had that turned out to not be the idea. <laughs> or you, you learned, you learned enough stuff that you realized that only a person with a certain amount of ignorance on the topic would think that would be the book. And it's once you learn a little bit more, you're like, oh no, it should be about this. And I, I also like the care you give to each of these uh, these people who become the uh, the characters in the story of, of the book. Each one is treated with, though you your voice comes through and you have plenty of asides where you're given a little winks and little nudges and telling us uh, the truth of the matter and being a good journalist. The humanity of each of these people is held sacred throughout, and that's really well done. And I, especially considering how easy it would be to just just to just poke fun at, at what that what's more important here, and it comes across, is there each person is motivated by something that is real and really did, did happen to them and push them forward. And then there are other motivations they aren't really, they don't seem to be aware of, whether it's, you know, trying to get rich or it's just trying to validate yourself or seem like your life meant something or saved the world. Uh, they all independently arrive at feeling like they have and just tell me if i'm reading it wrong but they they all seem to at some point feel like they're holding the flaming sword of justice in their hand and in the other hand they have the cure uh you you mentioned it over and over again the one true cure they have that in one hand and they have a flaming sword of justice in the other and they're fighting the only fight that anyone would fight if they had these two two things if they really believed it truly in their heart am i am i on the right path with this flaming sword and, and and one true cure thing
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Like that, that was one of the things that really struck me was that, uh, they each kind of, uh, came up on this idea that they had developed the one true cure, this thing that was going to revolutionize healthcare. Right. They, they, and they, they each got very excited about this idea. Um, you know, some of them, uh, simply because they wanted to help humanity and some of them because they, they saw as a massive profitable product, uh, that they wanted to put out there. And at some point they each just got so their self identities became so enmeshed with this miracle discovery that this revolutionary discovery that they cast themselves in these roles, you know, their, their self identities were, Hey, I am the guy, uh, or woman who has come up with a cure, uh, to, you know, cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's and liver disease and, and erectile dysfunction, whatever it is. Uh, I, I can cure it with this thing that I've come up with. And that's just such a, a, a seductive and beguiling thought. You know, if you really uh, had reason to believe that about yourself, you know, wouldn't you buy into that narrative? And, and these, these folks, uh, they had this amazing self-image where they were uh, going to change the world. Yeah. And as you say, like kind of like the natural end point of that is if you have something that you think is so amazing. And you're being stymied in your efforts to get it out to the public by the government, then you would be well justified to, to get up on a high horse and brandish that flaming sword of justice against the government uh, and uh, evangelize your, your product till your dying breath. And that's exactly what a lot of these folks did, you know, not only to their own detriment, but to the detriment of, of you know, thousands of their patients and followers.
0: A lot of this goes back to 1994 with this dietary supplement industry th- successful lobbying attempt uh, to pass this thing called the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. Um, you say in the book in just six years after that, and we went, that industry went from $4 billion a year to $18 billion a year, uh, what was that act and what did it do? Yeah.
1: So basically the, the primary, the act was, um, passed with lobbying, uh, for, from the supplements industry in particular, alternative healers more generally, uh, and, and from a lot of Americans who like to take vitamins, for uh, whatever reason, and were told that this would help their ability to get vitamins uh, more easily and and cheaper. Uh, But what it really did was it shifted the burden of proof from the person selling the supplements to the government. So in other words, previous uh, to that, if you wanted to sell a vitamin, you had to go to the FDA and say, Hey, I have this vitamin, and here is how you know that it's safe uh, for for me to sell to the public. After the Diche was passed, that situation was reversed. So now you can just go sell your supplement, and the FDA has to come to you and say, "Hey, we think there's a problem." And as you said, you know, eighteen thousand su- uh, different supplements out there. Well, that's going to keep a federal agency very, very busy. The end result of that was that a people in order to make supplements more cheaply uh, following the profit motive, they had a lot more leeway to include uh, you know, inert junk in, in their pills or to source materials that either A, were cheap and potentially contaminated with, with pollutants and all sorts of crap, uh, or B, had pharmaceuticals in them that would produce physical effects that, that would increase the public appetite for them like an, an all, a supposedly all-natural erectile dysfunction pill uh, actually had 32 times the legal limit uh, of uh, what was included in a pill of Viagra. So it was like taking 32 Viagra pills in the supposedly all-natural supplement. And, and yeah, there, there's, there's all sorts of anecdotes of horrific things found in these pills. But yeah, you know, p- selling pills became much more profitable and that invited a lot of, unsavory people to enter the field and also kind of gave a shot to the sorts of advertisements and production of articles and magazines of the sort that Toby read, which got him rolling. Like he, he kind of started reading these all natural magazines at this time, uh, when, when the, the market was exploding and that I think is what kind of sucked him in. And this thing that was created by this, you also sort of creates a new kind of FDA. Cause as you
0: were saying they they have to, after the, they have to put out the fires as they are lit and they're, they're the ones who are having to determine if this is bad. And it creates a, a, like an FBI ized uh, FDA, like they're now agents of enforcement in a new way. It seems to me, um. And it, it, as you described them in the book, they become this aggressive force that has to reduce human beings to numbers and to objectify the problem they're facing. And they're just this such a stiff, strange agency where they they have to wear certain clothes. They have all these rules about jewelry and the pins they can wear. They have a giant 567-page operations manual. To me, that seems like if you're the kind of person who already is fearful of the government and don't trust institutions and have feel that you've been left aside by the healthcare industry and you have all these issues and you start to get that sense that you've found the one true cure and that sense that you have the, the sword of, of glory… What a great bad guy to have suddenly come on the, <laughs> in, to come into your story. What a perfect thing to fight as Neo in the matrix of medicine.
1: Oh my God. That, that's so funny that you mentioned Neo because, uh, I've been actually using that metaphor, uh, because as you know, in the matrix movies, what Neo is, is kind of like the living embodiment of all the irreducible flaws in the system that this evil computer simulation system, right? That they're channeled into Neo, who you know kind of kind of like fights and, and fails over and over again as a way to kind of keep those negative forces busy, and in the same way, uh, yeah, like our system is so deeply flawed, and you know healthcare is so inaccessible uh, for so many people the, the doctor supply is so short in so many areas, and the culture gap between both medically trained doctors and FDA bureaucrats. Is so great, and it's such a, a turnoff uh, to to individuals that you're just kind of creating this very fertile environment for one true cureism to to run rampant and get out of control.
0: You have the FDA, the CDC, the FTC, and others become these arbiters of of, of justice, and they're running around putting out fires as more fires are being generated. And well, <laughs> you get this. Is what you, <laughs> <laughs> And we're still in the middle of it. That's what's sort of astonishing, I think. Uh, You said in 2015, uh, 23,000 Americans went to the emergency room after taking a bunk dietary supplement. Um, So I'm just wondering what's, uh, as a, a, the book is is great. I love it. And just to give you a chance to sort of sum up everything here, who do you you hope reads this book, for one, is my first question. And the second part of that question is... uh, Where do you think we go from here with this strange part of our, our history as a species when it comes to these dietary supplements and scientific method and medicine and everything sort of in a weird soup of trying to understand ourselves?
1: Yeah. uh, As far as who's who I hope reads the book, I hope it's not um, the echo chamber. I I hope I'm not preaching to the choir. Um, The book is fun and funny and uh, uh, has some propulsive uh, plot elements and I hope that that will lead it to an audience of folks who are, you know, maybe not interested in reading the next thing about doomsday politics and are just kind of looking for, you know, it, it's, it's a dark take, uh, but it's a, also a comic take. And so I hope uh, folks pick it up. Uh, who? It's certainly a dark comedy. Book yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, I
0: apparently uh, it, it, but it's, there's a humongous amount of humanity in it yeah. it's told through the lens of, 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 of a dark comedy sort of uh take on, on something that really is happening to a lot of people. And so many of our friends and family and loved ones are in this in some way or another. They're experiencing it on in, in one of the levels that's described here. That's very much worth your time. Um, And I'm wondering what's next. uh Do you think for this world that you've covered, where does it seem to be headed next? Um, Yeah,
1: I, I think uh, we're, we're just seeing more and more intensification. Like as, These forces have kind of uh, crystallized under the banner of medical freedom and found ever increasing dominance within the mainstream Republican establishment. You know, I I think uh, those forces combined with the increased siloing created by social media, that I'm sure we've all heard about ad nauseum, uh, I I think we're going to see bigger and better and more extreme bizarre medicines and zombie conspiracy theories and all the rest of it. So um, have a great week, everybody.
0: If it sounds like a quack, and the author is Matthew Hongoltz Hetling, and you can follow him on Twitter at h underscore M-A-T-T, I assure you, the book is worth your time. It will not depress you. I hope this episode did not depress you. There's a lot in there that I feel should be part of the conversation, and it's very human, and it is darkly comedic in the very best way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything we talked about, head to smart.com or check the show notes inside your podcast player for links to things. My new book, How Minds Change, I say it's new. It just had its one-year birthday, but it really feels like it just came out. I'm going all over the place giving lectures over the next few months. In fact, the University of Wisconsin-Madison just named it as its big old book of the year. They're going to... Give it to every single freshman. That's a lot of books. And I'm going to go there to give a lecture, including lots of other places. I'm going Goddard Space Center to universities and other weird locations. If you would like me to come give a lecture at your weird location, just email me. You can email me at davidmcraney at gmail.com. Yeah, I just gave my email out. I will answer almost every email that I receive eventually. So just give me a minute. So if you want to know more about how minds change, go to the homepage. Uh, that's going to be a link in the show notes for that. It's just David And from there, it'll all make sense to you. If you would like to watch on that website, a round table video of a group of persuasion experts featured in the book, you can do that. You can also read a sample chapter, download a discussion guide, sign up for the newsletter, which I promise I'm about to go crazy writing stuff for that. You can read reviews and you can scroll through some of the podcasts and YouTube channels. I've been on promoting it for all the past episodes of this show go to Stitcher SoundCloud Apple Podcast Apple Music Audible Google Podcast, Spotify or You're so Smart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also on Facebook at slash you are not so smart. And if you would like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription, other features, a lot of you just got all of your books and extra stuff that you signed up for. You got that by going to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free but the higher amounts get you posters and t-shirts and sign books and other stuff the opening music that's clash by caravan palace tell everyone you know about the show that is the easiest and best way to actually support it there's an episode that really landed for you let other people know about it and check back in in about two weeks for a fresh new episode
1: Your Space Coast vacation is preparing for liftoff. Start counting down now. 10, 9, 8, 7, it's time for a beach vacay that feels like heaven. 6, 5, 4, come explore Melbourne and the beaches. 3, 2, 1, it's time for some rocket-filled fun. Count down to your best beach vacation ever on Florida's Space Coast. Launch your planning now at visitspacecoast.com.